There was a reason that I was there and just absolutely loved ethics because unlike all of my medical training beforehand, which had taught me what to think, ethics really expanded how to think and how to work through problems in a very different way. And I think that that serves me every day. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Jeannie Crick, a neonatologist and consultant to the Army Surgeon General for Medical Ethics. Jeannie talks about the fundamental ethical considerations for patients and their health care and explains where involving an ethics committee or ethics consult might be indicated which would be beneficial for patients and healthcare professionals. She also describes some unique ethical dilemmas and challenges that are faced during deployments in active war zones or other austere locations around the globe. Dr. Crick also provides some great advice for those wishing to develop a better understanding of medical ethics and some of the resources available to supplement an ethics curriculum or aid an ethics committee. She also discusses the future horizons in medical ethics, including the implementations of artificial intelligence into ethical decision-making processes. Find out more about Dr. Crick and our previous guests on our website, wordoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army Lieutenant Colonel, Dr. Jeannie Crick to Wardox. Jeannie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So Jeannie, you graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point. What prompted your interest in medicine and becoming a doctor? Yeah, so I knew early on that I wanted to go into medicine. It actually well predated my interest in joining the military. I had an older sister who passed away before I was born from a rare mitochondrial disorder. And the pediatricians who took care of her became my pediatricians growing up. And they had such a strong relationship with my parents, especially my mom, that it, it was just something that I admired. It's how much of a difference they could make on someone's life in just such a short period of time, really, that she was sick. And I knew that that was something that spoke to me. So I knew pretty early on, I was probably 12, 13, where I not only knew I wanted to go into medicine, but that I wanted to be a pediatrician, actually. And it wasn't until high school, 9-11 happened when I was in high school, and it made me start to think about, hmm, maybe I want to give back in a different way. And it made me think about joining the military. And then I heard that there was a way to do this whole medicine thing in the military, specifically in the army. And that made me look into different options. And West Point spoke to me. I had a little bit of a family history there, cousin, uncle, my grandfather. And it seemed like the right fit for me. So tell us a little bit about how you decided on your specialty, because you not only did pediatrics, you subspecialized. And then tell us a little bit about how you got into medical ethics. Yeah. I, my very first rotation in my pediatrics residency was in the NICU. And I absolutely loved that environment. It was a great mix between critical care medicine, high acuity, but also with a little bit of a mix of primary care where you build these deep lasting relationships with families that are longitudinal and can last for months at a time. Where 
an ICU where we kind of combine those two things. And I thought that that was just going to be the whole rest of residency. Wow, this is so amazing. I quickly went on to other rotations that were less engaging for me. And while I enjoyed them, they just didn't speak to me as much. And so within a year or so, I think I had settled on, I want to do this NICU thing. And then it wasn't really until I got into my fellowship and started looking at different research options, which is a requirement as part of our fellowship, that I started to learn a little bit more about bioethics. I was very interested in looking at how physicians communicate with parents in the ICU setting. And that led me down a whole pathway to meet and talk with people who specialize in medical ethics. And they led me down the path to consider doing some extra training in medical ethics. And I was very fortunate that where I was doing my fellowship at the University of Washington, that there was a very strong ethics program through the Children's Hospital. So I just fell into the right fit for me. I think that I was in the right spot and there was a reason that I was there and just absolutely loved ethics because unlike all of my medical training beforehand, which had taught me what to think, ethics really expanded how to think and how to work through problems in a very different way. And I think that that serves me every day, just even in the clinical environment. So it teaches you how to, how to think differently, you said. But what, tell us sort of what are the fundamentals when someone thinks about getting extra training in ethics? So I think everybody in medicine is probably familiar with those four pillars of medical ethics, the four principles, your autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice. That's really just scratching the surface. That's that book that's just on our bookshelf collecting dust that we all had to purchase in medical school. But that's such a small piece of what ethics is and how we look at a problem. In ethics, what I was trained to do is kind of take a step back and try to be as objective as possible when looking at a very subjective issue a lot of times and look at it from a lot of different perspectives. So not only different stakeholders, but what do we prioritize? Do we prioritize those four pillars? Which pillar is going to win out on the day? Or do I need to look at something different? So there's different philosophies of ethics and One of the ones that speaks to me a lot is something called ethics of care, where we look at relationships. It's actually the relationships that are the most important. And so when I'm taking a step back and looking at a case or a situation, I'm thinking through all of these different ethical foundations and analyzing, all right, how can all of these different things integrate to lead to the best outcome for the patient and the whole situation? So sometimes... Clinicians don't know what they don't know. And so how would I know when it would be appropriate to get a medical ethics consult? And and what are some of the common things that you guys see? This is a great question and one that I am incredibly passionate about. I often think that the ethics consult gets called on the late side, if anything, because most clinicians feel pretty comfortable with some basics and they want to work through a situation at the lowest level possible, which makes sense. Oftentimes, we don't get involved until there are big fights and big conflicts and a lot of trust and relationships have been broken down to a certain degree. We really can get involved at any point in time. 
even if it's a, hey, I think I know the right thing to do here, but I, I'm just having a moment where I, there's some conflicting values here and I just want to talk it through. That's a great time to call an ethics consult. We can be as involved or as little as involved as is appropriate for the situation. A lot of my consults are just people giving me a call and saying, hey, I just want to run this case by you. What do you think? Versus other ones where I'm very involved and I meet with the family multiple times. We have sit-down meetings with the multidisciplinary team. My role as an ethics consultant, I think, is to try to engage the different stakeholders to really get that 360 view. So I encourage anybody, not just the clinician side of the house, but the ancillary staff, even family members and patients, if there's ever a time where there's just some, there's conflicting values or there's questions about different values and decisions to reach out to your local ethics consultant. So can you give me an example of something that would be a common medical ethics consult just to give the listeners an idea of what would be in the realm of normal? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most common consult that we get is when there's a patient who is no longer able to make decisions for themselves. They lack decision-making capacity and it's unclear who their surrogate decision maker is or if that surrogate decision maker is really making a decision that aligned with what we know about the patient. That's probably the most common. Most of those are, it crosses the border between ethics and legal in a lot of ways, because there's a hierarchy of who you go to as the surrogate decision maker if the patient doesn't have a designated decision maker already for them. But especially when you get to those cases of, well, we're not sure that the surrogate decision maker is actually making the choice that the patient would for themselves, that's where we can come in. And the great thing there is we can spend the time to talk to the usually family member and say, hey, what's your motivation for making this decision? Let's explore that a little bit more. What do we know about your family member? What were their values? What were their priorities? How can we help the team understand your perspective? How can we help you understand the team's perspective so that we can lead to what the best outcome is in that situation? There's a few that are a little bit more military specific that I think are relevant, especially for the listeners here, that we get more or less involved in depending on the MTF that you're at. And for those who aren't familiar with some of the acronyms, MTF is the medical treatment facility, which is a hospital in the military. So I've been at a couple of MTFs where I've been the chair of the ethics committee. And each one has handled this a little bit differently, but there are some situations where we have service members who need to be on a medication and are refusing it. So the classic example is a newly diagnosed schizophrenic patient or somebody who is having delusions. And they're in the process of being med boarded out of the military and they're refusing to take their medications. They're not acute danger to themselves or others, but they also are not able to actively participate in that med board process. So it's ultimately the commander's decision to compel the service member to take that medication. But depending on which command you're at, they may or may not have us help make that assessment of can that service member make that decision for themselves? Or does this cross a threshold by which they should be mandating that medication administration? So those are a couple of pretty common ones that we get. So we may have some listeners who are listening to this podcast and saying, oh, this 
medical ethics is something that I'd be interested in, particularly if they're early in their medical career. And so your pathway, just for the listeners to know, is that you did go to West Point. You then graduated from the Uniformed Services University. You did a pediatric residency at Madigan Army Medical Center, which is in Tacoma, Washington, followed by your neonatology fellowship at the University of Washington. And then you did a bioethics and humanity, got an MA while you were at the University of Washington in Seattle, and also a clinical bioethics fellowship. What is the certification that you get for doing the medical ethics pathway? And is it open to all specialties? Yeah, this is a very hot topic that is growing within the United States, not just within the military community. There's a lot more interest in bioethics, even before the pandemic, but especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people are taking a hard look and saying, hey, obviously this ethics thing is important. I feel like I want a little bit more in my toolbox. How do I get more training on this? My pathway was a little bit difference in that I lucked into where I was at for my neonatology fellowship that there was a bioethics program there that had a strong fellowship and a strong uh, master's program. As part of my fellowship, the master's program was an integrated part. So they were they were naturally blended, but it consisted of coursework as part of the master's and then the actual clinical ethics consultation service with the fellowship as well as some didactics there. What a lot more people within the military are starting to do are certificate programs. There are a lot of ethics certificate programs across the country. Many are popping up frequently. I know the University of Washington has one. So does Children's Mercy in Kansas City, the McLean Center in Chicago. There's a lot of great ones out there where they have more distance learning, which is obviously a lot more approachable for a lot of our population where they can get more ethics training and they can get a certification. In the near future, we are hoping that through the Uniform Services University, we will be able to offer some educational opportunities for anyone who works within our military healthcare system to be able to get that extra training if they so desire. So more to follow on that in the future. And then there's a lot of different lecture series and things that pop up along the way. The thing about ethics is it's it, it's still a little bit in its infancy as a formalized field. There's a lot of people with a lot of interest, but not a whole lot of people with a lot of training. So the certification process is very new. There's something called, it's the HEC-C, Health Ethics Consultative Certification. That is through the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities. And that's a way to say, yes, I am certified that I can do this. It's only been around for a few years and it consists of it, a written exam as well as so many hours of clinical ethics consultation. So that is something that is out there for those who have some experience to be recognized as having had some training in clinical ethics consultation. So you mentioned that you were the chairperson of medical ethics committees. And so take us through what is the typical composition of a medical ethics committee because you've also helped set up a couple as well. In my role as the consultant to the Surgeon General for Medical Ethics, which most people didn't know that existed, I didn't know it existed at least when before I got into ethics, I am really here to help people across the military. I say it across the military, not just the army, because 
while there used to be my same person in the Navy and the Air Force, they have stepped down those services. So I, I really am available for anyone. So a Naval Hospital reached out to me with some help. Some things that are key when you're looking at establishing an ethics committee is there are guidelines on what to do that I mentioned before the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. Their website has some great guidelines as a starting place of what what is an ethics committee? What's its purpose? What do I need to have on it? And in a nutshell, the big thing that I would stress is you want diverse views to make up your committee because you don't just want one person advising your whole hospital on how to proceed with this. We talked about the role of ethics is to get that 360 view. I I think that comes on a macro level as well as that micro level where your committee's really got to have a lot of perspective. So it shouldn't be made of all doctors. You got to have a little bit of everybody. It probably should have a community member on it who's not affiliated with the hospital at all, if that's possible. And how you go about structuring the way that you address consults that come up at the institution, that can vary. And I've seen that done from there's one or two point people who kind of take all the consults versus every single consult goes to the whole committee. That's adjustable. And that isn't set in stone. And I think it really depends on where you are. And so that's what I do when I help different institutions come up with what's the best plan for them. I just help them think through how can we accomplish that larger mission of helping the hospital system and providing that assistance that they need when we face these really challenging ethics cases. So an ethics question on the ethics committee is what happens when the ethics committee doesn't agree on the way that a certain case should be handled? Well, I've had a few of those. There's definitely been some ones that have been really hot button issues where you can't get to consensus. Oftentimes, we end up with a vote of the ethics committee. And as I'm writing up the findings of the ethics committee, we don't have any authority. We make recommendations to the team, really. We don't have the legal backing. We Again, we are a consultative service. And so in my write-up, as I give my ethical analysis and recommendations, I usually state bluntly that there was disagreement amongst the committee about this. And both of these things could be ethically permissible, depending upon the situation. You mentioned one of the pillars in ethics is autonomy. And healthcare professionals really like to have autonomy as well as patients. And so how does an ethics committee balance that need for provider autonomy, but also with accountability and oversight when there is a sensitive ethical decision that's being made? That's a really great question. And oftentimes that is forefront of maybe a hospital commander's mind of how do I walk that fine balance of letting you take the autonomy that you need as an individual provider without bringing Uh, increased liability or attention to what is going on in my institution. I think the biggest thing for me is, number one, focus on the patient. It always, to me, gets back to the patient when I'm doing individual ethics consultation. If I'm doing more an organizational ethics role, so I should break that down, ethics consultation, individual patient, bedside, organizational policy setting, advising hospital commanders and leadership committees, things like that. If I'm looking at the at the individual patient in front of me, I really can focus on the patient and try to steer 
that back to everything. When we get into those cases where there's a lot of consternation about, hey, if we allow this or we do this here with the provider autonomy, which is in agreement with what the patient wants, but it's potentially against a policy or it might look bad. I try to see if there's a, a way ethically that we can see this as, hey, this is supporting not only the autonomy of the provider, but the autonomy of the patient. If it really is such a hard clash, then we have to take a step back and say, okay, organizationally, where did this policy come from? What are its foundations? What are the principles that underlie that policy? And are those ethically sound in this case? And so each individual one has to be taken one at a time and really carefully sought through so that you can both preserve that autonomy to the best that you can while also supporting your organization. So you mentioned earlier that you were the consultant to the U.S. Army Surgeon General for ethics. And we think about that being more on the policy side. So you're more of the enterprise level of medical leadership. Have you had it? Any examples that you could share of where maybe the the bridge between deployed medicine, CONUS medicine, and the Surgeon General's office sort of met, met together to where there was a situation or a proposed example that might have needed an ethics consultation? Yeah, so I've been in this role for two and a half years now. And in that time, most of the the policy level things that I have interacted with, most of them have to do with non-deployed settings because those have been the hot button issues that have come up over the last couple of years in the wake of the pandemic and a couple of different Supreme Court rulings that have come out. So the policy things that have been the forefront of the chief of the consultants and the Surgeon General themselves have related more to that. I have been a little bit involved in planning for future operations and starting to scaffold some ideas of how we might um, deal with some really ethically challenging situations in, say, a large-scale combat operation. What are we going to do if we can't use the regular triage algorithms that we've grown accustomed to in our current operations? What are we going to do if we're completely overrun? And while everybody is quick to think about the actual logistics on the ground, it's not until you are in a situation that everybody goes, ooh, we, we should figure out this ethics thing uh, a lot of times. That's what we found in the pandemic, too, is everybody was so quick to rush to do all that, that it was kind of taking a step back where, well, we need to think about the ethical principles that underlie this as well. And so my job, I feel like, is to be really vocal and real pushy and say, hey, I'm your ethics person. I have some thoughts on this. Let me help you walk through that. And usually when I approach somebody with that situation, they say, oh, yeah, I absolutely. Can you help me work through this? So I've been fortunate enough to walk through some considerations for future operation, as well as some current things that are happening in non-deployed settings in the wake of Supreme Court cases and changing policies. So you mentioned some of the potential ethical situations that can arise, especially in deployed settings when the medical demand really outnumbers the medical supply. And so you have to take care of more stuff than you have in your kit. What are some other medical challenges that providers, healthcare professionals might see in a deployed setting 
And things I can think of is dealing with enemy combatants, maybe prisoners of war. What, what kind of things come up and, and how should a command deal with that when they're confronted with that? Absolutely. The things that you mentioned are some of the hot button issues that we saw out of the last conflicts that we were in. Medical rules of engagement are a huge piece of what I think about when I'm thinking about future operations. So who can we treat? How do we set up those resource allocation schemes? And what is the basis by which we are establishing that? So in addition to just thinking about the actual practical on the ground, how do I make this stretch to this? It's really taking that step back and saying, okay, how am I making those decisions? What are the priorities that I'm setting to be able to do the job on the ground and make those decisions? The thing for the commanders on the ground to remember and and why I'm so vocal early on about a lot of this is that the, the last place you want to be making these decisions is at the bedside. We saw this in the pandemic. Nobody at the bedside wants to make the decision of who gets the last ventilator. The best way that we can support our bedside providers and those people on the ground is having these really hard conversations and making these really difficult decisions ahead of time. And how we make those decisions is we decide what are we going to put value on? How are we going to allocate scarce resources? And how are we going to deal with those situations and and who's going to make those decisions? So I keep going back to the pandemic because I think it's the most approachable and most familiar with folks by now. Again, nobody wanted to be that provider at the bedside saying, hey, sorry, you don't get the the ventilator because we're going to give it to this guy. A lot of places dealt with that by creating these triage teams that were familiar with what the medical situation was going on and could assess the situation, but were not the ones actually taking care of the patient. And they tried to set up as objective measures as they could, placing values on whatever that individual institution identified as the most appropriate, often quality of life, life years, and setting up those algorithms ahead of time so you it didn't have to burden the person who was already burdened with the care of that individual patient. It was so important for supporting our bedside providers in pandemics, and I think it's going to be just as, if not more important, in supporting our bedside providers in future combat operations. You might have a 20-something-year-old medic making some of these decisions, and you don't want to have to burden them with that immense decision. So the more that we can think through these things and give sound judgments of how we do this and recommend to commanders that they really carefully think how they're going to set up these medical rules of engagement, the more prepared that we can be. Yeah, I would say one of the things that I hear, especially from medics who are on the front line going to austere places, they bring only enough stuff medically to take care of them and their fellow American soldiers. But they're often working alongside coalition partners, and they're also enemy combatants that are getting injured. And the tendency or the this is human nature to say, hey, I got to save my stuff for my guys. We're going on some big mission tomorrow, but all these people around me now need the equipment and the supplies that I have. How would you deal with that situation if a commander says, hey, this is what's going on in my unit? How do we deal with that? 
I think the biggest way to start dealing with that is to make sure that number one, the commanders are, are on board with this, the principles of the Geneva Conventions that really specify that we have to abide by certain rules and that they are on board with the same ethical principles that their higher commanders are. First, having their buy-in and their understanding. The second is sharing that vision and that understanding to the lowest levels possible. Anytime commanders are setting down any sort of roles, they, their visions, they should be explaining to a certain degree what their thought process is behind that. And something like this, where the individual person on the ground has to make such a hard decision that I, I would never want to be in that situation for sure. And I, I know several people who have been there and, and it's really, really, really hard. And these are people with lots and lots of training and it's just human nature to want to help your buddy first. You, you have to have that intestinal fortitude and that deep in that knowledge of this is the right thing to do because this is what we stand for as our, as our unit, as our nation, as our service. And so I think the biggest piece is talking about it beforehand training on it before it happened, understanding why we do the things that we do and why we abide by the certain rules is the most helpful thing that we can do, but also supporting the people on the front lines with the appropriate behavioral health support that they're going to need, obviously, both in the moment and after the fact, and letting them know that as the command, we got their back. I find that interesting that your your comment about planning for it ahead of time, because in the deployed environment, actually, you can't always know what the next outcome is going to be. And I'll give you a, a personal story with that and follow it with a question. And so last year I was in Baghdad, but I was deployed into Syria because there had been a patient who was severely injured and needed surgery. And so when I got there, the patient agreed to the surgery, but he said, I need to get permission from my brother. His brother showed up. His brother said, I need to get permission from the tribe. Brother left to go talk to the tribe. Brother comes back and says, we don't consent to the surgery. We're going to go elsewhere to seek surgery. And ultimately, as you've mentioned through your theme, it did come down to the command's decision whether the patient would stay or go. And they decided to respect the patient and the tribe's wishes because they knew them certainly better than I did, only being there for a few hours. And so I mentioned that because that was not an expected outcome, right? I was not prepared mentally, emotionally for that encounter. I probably would have done well to have some pre-preparation, but how would you approach situations like that where there is a direct conflict between how, what I would perceive as the uh, appropriate treatment and what the culture would perceive as the appropriate treatment? Yeah, I, I think there's two parts to answer that question, and, and thank you for sharing it. I have heard similar stories from friends who have been deployed as well. I think the first part of it is how, how do you prepare yourself for the unknown, right? Like there's, we're never going to know everything in medicine. It's just like how you want to prepare yourself as best as possible to be a surgeon, but sometimes you're going to encounter a situation where you're like, well, I've seen this one. I probably could YouTube it real quick and get good enough. I'm exaggerating quite a bit, obviously. And and knowing when you got to do your best and, and you can only know what you know going into the moment. And so I think having these conversations is so important of 
learning lessons from the past, but also just having that good foundational knowledge and understanding of your medical rules of engagement, basic ethical principles that underlie a lot of these things, and then knowing where your resources are. So when I say knowing what your resources are, I have actually personally gotten emails from people who are forward deployed saying like, I've got this really tricky situation. I just need to talk this through with somebody. And and I've had those kind of conversations in actually a very similar setting. And I get it. You're not going to have the time, luxury, internet connection to be able to do that in a lot of places. So that's where I think talking about these situations ahead of time is so important. When it comes to this particular issue where we're dealing with a cultural difference from what we usually do, there, there is a lot of ethical foundation to stand on here. So there's something called cultural relativism within the philosophical world, where it talks about how different cultures view different things and how they view what is morally right in certain situations. A classic example just gets back to autonomy. In large part in the Western world, we hold autonomy as kind of the pinnacle of what we respect when we're talking about those four principles. In other words, I need to inform my patient to the best of my ability what's going on, what their options are, and I'm going to respect their choice even if I disagree with it. Other cultures, it's a little bit different where they often, as an individual patient, defer autonomy to a family member, a tribe in your situation a loved one or otherwise. And the question always comes back, well, what's the right way to do this? And what cultural relativism would suggest is that you can only view right from within that culture. So if that person within that culture, if the right decision for them is to defer that decision or not even hear what the decision is, then culturally, ethically, you're okay, even if you are coming from a different culture, to proceed that way because that actually is respecting their autonomy just in a very different way than how we view it in the Western medical world. This happens all the time. Even here, when we get people from different backgrounds and different cultural backgrounds, maybe it's a patient who says, I don't want to hear any of my information. You tell all of my information to my daughter, uh, my son, my husband. They're going to make my decisions for me. And you're like, but... I need you to have an informed decision. Well, their informed decision is to defer that decision. And that's okay. Makes us really uncomfortable. And that's why talking about this ahead of time is so important because these situations are going to make us uncomfortable. And the more austere and the more unexpected, the more uncomfortable it's going to be. You know, that discussion of cultural relativism made me think about the military culture and how things are different in the military than they are from the civilian sector, especially when it comes to patient confidentiality. We have HIPAA rules, but we also have readiness and the command structure and the need for information, particularly medical information that may impact readiness. How do you advise healthcare professionals, commanders to balance that? And how do you navigate that when the patient, you feel like you've got that confidentiality requirement for a patient, but the chain of command probably needs to know what they're dealing with. Yeah, the biggest thing for me there is intent. Why do they want to know the information? Is it truly readiness? Is it truly related to the mission? Or are they being a little overly paternalistic as the command, which I have seen sometimes? A lot of commands, very well-intentioned, very well-meaning, 
want to know everything that's going on because they want to support their service member to the best of their ability. But at the end of the day, what's going on, the, the very specifics of what's going on, doesn't really impact their ability to support them and doesn't really impact the mission requirements. So at the end of the day, you got to get back to that intent. Why do they want to know the information? Does it really affect what they're asking for? Or can you give them a limited piece of that that would be able to inform them making those calls about mission readiness and capability to do that mission? Because that way of doing it respects that confidentiality to the best of the ability while also supporting that larger military mission. How do you think the advent of artificial intelligence has impacted medical ethics as AIs now being used to handle potentially decisions that physicians had traditionally used judgment and other type of scoring metrics? Oh, that is a big hot button issue right now in medical ethics. I was recently at the annual conference for the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, and I would say a quarter of the sessions were dedicated to AI or something related to AI. I think there's a lot to unpack there. For me, the biggest concerns that I have is when we talk about ethics, decision-making is like one of our our big things. And when we're talking about our artificial intelligence making decisions, I don't know how they're making those decisions. And I think there needs to be an element of a sniff test to be able to understand what is the algorithm doing? What data are they using to create that algorithm? And how is that being applied in certain situations? And are we taking out the human element of decision-making, which I think is so important to remember. One of the perfect examples of it is we've seen several of these algorithms and decision-making tools almost have some racial bias or socioeconomic bias solely because of the way that the algorithm was built. And so it's those, it's things like that that have ethicist concerned as well as some other things. I think it's a great tool if it is set up correctly, but I do appreciate the fact that many of these large artificial intelligence platforms are starting to consult with ethicists early to make sure that they're having good ethical foundations for how they're building their algorithm. So interestingly, in the area of technology, there's a lot of advancement in biotechnology, medical research. And in the past, we've seen soldiers try to use physical and cognitive improvement methods, stimulants to stay awake, sleeping pills to help them get sleep, and just to help them function better. But as technology gets better and research kind of develops, and now we are coming up with maybe genetic modifications that can make us physically stronger, mentally more acute. How do you deal with that ethically and as it applies to the military and wanting to be the number one fighting force on the planet? I think there's two parts to that. So when we're talking about the research side of it is one, and then the actual practical application, once it gets past the research stage is another. So when you're talking about research and military population, Anybody who's had to do the city training course to be able to submit an an IRB research project knows that the military population is a special protected population with certain considerations for how you conduct research on them. And I think it's the responsibility of any researcher to really, really carefully consider how they study such enhancements. The second is the actual practical implications. 
So we have certain enhancement we're talking about with the pills to help stay awake. We don't think of those as enhancements, but they really are. And you have to think about, is it voluntary versus it compulsory? And that's where I think it gets a little bit tricky. Voluntary, I think, is one thing with certain protections. And I, I really think the important piece there is that truly voluntary, truly informed consent to participate in whatever enhancement without undue influence, which is almost impossible when a commander is coming and saying, hey, you can take this great pill that can help you stay awake and do your job. But it's so important to really emphasize that piece of it. The compulsory side is where I start to get a little bit more concerned because I think there's there's different thresholds that we need to set when we talk about making things compulsory because when we make things compulsory, we're really suppressing autonomy. And that to me is something that can't be done lightly and has to be really carefully considered before we do that. So speaking of compulsory, and I know this is a very hot button topic and I don't want to get you in trouble. But with the the COVID vaccine, obviously, is in the news. And I guess the question I want to ask you, when the next pandemic comes around, have we learned any lessons in the military of how we're going to deal with a potential vaccine? And what can we do better in the future? I think there's a lot to learn from a lot of different angles. And I think it dovetails really nicely with the last question about there's the two components of it. When a vaccine is in a research stage and still being explored, I think that's one piece of it versus when it's fully approved. When you're still in the research stage, that's where I I think you really have a hard time mandating, truly mandating the vaccine before it's been fully FDA approved. And for anybody who's interested in the history, go back to the anthrax vaccine and everything that happened around administering that to service members. Uh, There were a lot of lessons learned out of that that informed the the COVID-19 pandemic and the rollout of that vaccine. So I, I think I have a little bit uh, more concerns about making something compulsory before it's fully FDA approved. Once you get into out of the research, out of the exploratory theoretical phase, that's where I think the, the ethical analysis switches a little bit. So the way that I looked at this was that everybody who chooses to join a voluntary force, which we are, we have said that we want to support the mission of the military. The mission of the military is tied very, very closely to readiness and ability to actually go do your job and not be quarantined. When you have put that as the forefront thing that you are willing to do, that allows us to suppress autonomy to a certain degree. There's a lot of people in the military who say, well, I signed on the dotted line. They can make me do whatever. I argue with that. I I don't think that's true. You cannot be told what to do in all situations. But there's some careful ways that you can look at how you override autonomy. And one of those from an ethics lens is something called the harm principle. The harm principle, it's it's applied in a lot of different ways. And it comes from John Stuart Mill, who's a philosopher. And basically, it says that if your decision or your lack of a decision would lead to potential harm of another, then your autonomy can be overridden. We're familiar with this in patients who are potentially homicidal. That can be expanded a little bit here to include harm to the organization and harm to the organization's mission. So in the case of a future pandemic, 
if you have a vaccine that's fully approved and that it's efficacious, if you have a service member who is refusing that, that's crossing that harm threshold because you are now saying that their decision to refuse the vaccine is actually harming the overall mission of the organization. And so when you've crossed that harm threshold, I can suppress your autonomy and say, nope, you're going to get this vaccine. And so my ethical analysis is that once that vaccine has been proven and is safe, that it is ethically justifiable to compel it. So you'd mentioned earlier that you were working with Uniformed Services University on and developing a medical ethics curriculum for shaping the values and decision-making skills of future healthcare professionals. What are the core principles that you believe should be central to a comprehensive medical ethics curriculum? And how can it be tailored to the specific needs of the different medical training scenarios, particularly for the military? Every person who goes through medical school has to undergo some sort of ethics training. It is a bit of a variety across, well, internationally, I should say, about how that's done. I think the most important thing goes back to something that I led with and that ethics, yeah, there's some facts, but it's really about how you think about things. It's not what you think about things. And so I think the important thing in any sort of ethics curriculum is to think about, all right, how do we want our future professionals within our field to think about really tricky situations? What tools can I give them to do that? So when we're talking about the medical students at USU, we want to give them a toolbox so that they can step into these really ethically challenging cases and say, okay, I can look at this using those four principles of ethics and I'm going to learn how to apply those in a really tricky situation. Or maybe I'm going to come at it from that, I mentioned that ethics of care lens at the beginning. Maybe I'm going to look at it from my relationships or maybe I'm going to look at it as, hey, what are the different obligations and duties of the different stakeholders in this situation? How can I look at that from a 360-degree view, pull out those different stakeholders and their interests, and come to a decision that considers that whole view? So it's really that thought process that we're interested in teaching our students. And I think any ethics curriculum needs to focus on, and especially when we're talking about our military healthcare workers who are going to go out to those austere environments and face the unexpected. I'm never going to be able to, to explain everything that they might face, just like you you talked about, Wayne. So I think it's really gets back to that thought process of how can I carefully consider and weigh my options. So have you ever encountered an experience or heard of an experience where you had to grapple with the tension between the duty to provide medical care as you feel like you have to provide it and the duty to follow orders or follow the military's policy? And there's, again, some hot button topics that are on the forefront of everybody's mind of how do you balance your desire to provide the care that you think is most appropriate when it may go against the orders or policy of the U.S. government? Yeah, this does come up. And I will say that I still struggle with this. There are situations where I can do an ethical analysis all day long and I can justify why I should do one thing and literally the law says I can't. And those are really, really hard. I, I don't want to get political at all as I'm doing this, but I, I work in neonatology, so I work very closely with my OB and maternal fetal medicine colleagues. 
And so the Supreme Court ruling within the last couple of years with the Dobbs decision has is something that came to my the forefront of my mind as you were asking that question. A lot of our OB colleagues are are facing this every day of, hey, I think I know the right thing for my patient. I think I know what the right thing is, but I can't offer it because of the state that I'm in. Where I was at a federal facility, it was one thing, but you could just refer them downtown for other things. And it, it's been very tricky to try to support them through this and trying to support the physicians who are making, helping their patients make decisions with the limitations of the laws of not only the federal government, but the state governments as well. And while the ethical framework is something that I can go back to, I, I will say that it's really, really challenging when ethics and the law conflict. And I don't have a great answer that other than talking about it a lot and sharing experiences. So you circled back a little bit to my next question, which was you're a neonatologist, but also a bioethics trained person. Can you give us a, an example case of being a neonatologist and then maybe a second case that was interesting about an ethical situation that arose? Yeah, I could actually bridge the gap and give you a couple that combine both of those. So I think a lot of neonatologists tend to be very interested in ethics because we deal with the beginning and the end of life just as part of my specialty. And there's some really heavy decisions that have to be made when babies are born really, really premature. So right now, a big debate with internationally is what is the earliest age at which babies can be born and survive outside the womb? That is not well established. And in fact, different institutions have different cutoffs for where that falls. And so as a neonatologist ethicist, this is something I've done a lot of work on of, is it right for one hospital in one town to have the cutoff be 22 weeks gestation at which they would potentially offer resuscitation? And then the other hospital, literally two blocks down the road, say, nope, it's 23 weeks. Is that ethically justifiable? How can we work through that? So that is a, is a big one that bridges the gap for me. And it's probably one of the things that led me into bioethics in the first place. Another one, getting back to the military situation, a little similar to you and your experience, Wayne. I had a situation where a forward deployed provider ended up in an austere setting with a critically ill baby who ended up getting surgery and ended up requiring a higher level of care than what really should have been provided where they were. But they were doing the absolute best they could. And they were calling back not only for help managing the baby because there definitely wasn't a pediatrician or a neonatologist anywhere nearby, but they were also asking, what's the right thing to do? How much should we offer? Because we know we can't offer follow-on care. So that was a really unique situation being a military neonatologist and ethicist, having to talk to commanders and advisors and the clinicians on the ground to give not only clinical recommendations, but also kind of an ethical analysis of wh where is our line here of what we're going to continue to provide. So we talked a little bit about artificial intelligence, but where do you see the future of medical ethics in the next 10 to 20 years going, and particularly within the context of military medicine? So the first thing is I think that, especially over the last four or five years, there's a 
huge uptick in those who are interested in being formally trained and getting further education in ethics, which I think is a boon for all of us. I think that it will be much more uh, common in the future to have at least a few people in each hospital who have some degree of ethics training. Right now, it's kind of few and far in between. There's a community of us in the military, but it's a pretty small community who have ethics training and background. So I think that will change in the future. I think we'll get a lot more people with some formalized background, which will help everybody because they can share that framework by which they look at these challenging cases. Second, I think you're going to see that people want to involve those ethicists in making policy level decisions a lot earlier because of a lot of the lessons that we learned out of the pandemic. It makes a whole lot more sense if we can try to anticipate a lot of these ethical conflicts that come up and try to plan for them as best as we can early. And bringing the ethicist in is a different viewpoint that might help prepare us a little bit better. We, we may have some, some folks listening who may be in college or early in medical school or even in the beginning of their training, and they're listening and they're saying, I've heard about those four principles, but I really want to dig deeper but I don't have an ethics curriculum like a USUS or other places, where would you advise those folks to go if they wanted to get that training or, or find out more about medical ethics? The first place I would suggest to go is to the website of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. They have a long list of resources that will give you a place to start of institutions that offer different educational offerings, but also just books and websites and lots of places to start. That's the first place. And then the second, I would say, is just start Googling ethics programs and ethics education, ethics certificate programs. A lot of them are going to come up and a lot of them have great educational offerings that you can take advantage of. A lot of times what happens is patients will come in with situations that are out of their control, but are emergency in nature. And so the ability to have, some may not even be survivable, right? And so the ability to have a lengthy thought process and time to think on these patients doesn't exist because you need to make a rapid decision quickly. And there sometimes is a conflict between the patient's family, even internally, say brother and sister, or a misinterpretation of the patient's wishes, or the patient may say, you know, I've, I've planned this out ahead of time, but now I've changed my mind. Can you just give me a, a framework of how you think about these situations just so that if the decision has to be made quickly and say just a few minutes period of time, how you might think about those types of situations? I can absolutely um, give you a, a personal example from my world. So in neonatology, I mentioned that the earliest a baby can survive outside the womb is 22 weeks. Well, because we know that babies um, still struggle a lot, even if they are provided resuscitation, between 22 weeks and 24 weeks, we actually talk to parents and do counseling and have them make a decision of whether they want us to provide resuscitation for their baby or not. As you can imagine, that's a pretty weighty decision. And you're talking about typically parents who are coming in, oh, middle of the night, contracting on medications that may be cloudy their judgment and in a really, really stressful situation. And I, as a neonatologist, am supposed to walk in, give them information and have them make probably the hardest decision of their life in like the next 20 minutes. 
yeah, they're not going to be able to make that a, a truly informed decision if such a thing is even possible. So this is where, depending on the situation, I think shared decision-making comes into play a lot. So when I say shared decision-making, people interpret it different ways. I really mean I got to share in that decision. If there is any time for me to understand what's important to you, what do you find important? What are your values? If there's any time, even the slightest degree, that is so helpful because I can turn around and say, oh, you value giving the baby a shot, but not having them have prolonged suffering. What I'm hearing you say makes me want to make this recommendation so that we can proceed this way. And a lot of people say, whoa, well, you're getting real paternalistic there. I say, no, 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 I'm not. I'm sharing in the decision. I'm not just offering a buffet menu of things that I can provide. I'm actually saying, based on your values, this is what I'm going to recommend. Um, that's not going to work all the time because sometimes you don't even have time to do that. So the other way that I would go is, okay, which decisions are irreversible here? And the decision to not provide resuscitation, that's going to lead to death. And so if, if I know that I can offer some degree of resuscitation, but still have that ongoing conversation to prolong that decision-making a little bit longer, it finds a little bit more time, maybe we can get a little bit more of those values discussions. It's really helpful for me to be able to truly do that shared decision where I can guide them in making those decisions in not an overly paternalistic way. That's what I found helpful in my own practice. Does it work all the time? No. Is every situation smooth? No. But it's something that I try to fall back on when I'm faced with those situations. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Jeannie Crick on Wardock's podcast. Jeannie, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights and really providing a lot of excellent information. And thanks for your service to the nation. We appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.